Good morning, everyone. Survived the week? Looking a little more windswept than last week? <laughs> I want to begin this morning with kind of a thought experiment, so bear, bear with me. Could you try and picture in your mind the happiest, most joy-filled person that you know? Just call them into mind. The kind of person, not, not, not syrupy, not just sentimental. They, they, they just make us annoyed, right? But, but genuinely, genuinely joyful. They're grateful for their life. They, they're confident because their trust is in God. They're, they're optimistic when they think about the future. They, they just kind of, they breathe life and energy and exuberance into the people that are around them. Do you have people like that in your life? I hope you have one or two. Right? I have one or two, anyway, and and I I love the time that I get to spend with them. It's just it's exhilarating. So I want you to picture them for a minute, and then alongside that, I also want you to picture in your mind the unhappiest, most joy challenged person that you know. I mean, somebody who's just negative and bitter and always complaining and says no a lot. I want you to think at that person. Don't look at them. <laughs> Don't elbow them or anything, but just, just think about them and, and, and hold on to the contrast. And, and then I, if you could, I want you to think about places, if you will, the happiest place on earth for you. Lakeside Cottage, secluded chalet somewhere, maybe your own backyard. Could be Disneyland. Though I'll admit, uh, we've been twice to Disneyland and I'm conflicted about it. It's, I mean, it's, it's certainly it's incredible, but it's 120 degrees there all the time. And the lineups are always an hour and a half long, even when you have the express pass. And it costs about as much as a used car to take your, your family. It's, it's still wonderful. But I, I think about Charlotte Bronte when I think about Disneyland. She said, life is so constructed that the event does not, cannot, and will not match the expectation. <laughs> That's Disneyland. Now, alongside those people and those places, one more little episode in the thought experiment. I want you to imagine, as you think about the church, but your church, what if the church became known as the happiest place on earth? I mean, what, what if the church was just notorious for its joy? What if you were able to approach, approach your God-given potential for joy as a human being and find it maximized? Here, what if when when somebody came to a service here, they they might be a stranger, they they might be new with us, maybe they they're unchurched, don't know the Bible, maybe they feel like their life is a bit of a mess. That's okay. It just they felt happy. They, they they felt embraced by a community of people who exuded joy. What if when people heard the word Christian, instead of thinking judgmental or hypocritical or hate filled? They just thought joy. Those are some of the most joy-filled, happiness-pervaded people that we've ever met. There's a stand-up comedian. He's an Episcopalian. 
Episcopalian, do you, do you know that word? Uh, uh, the, the United States hated everything English. So they let the Anglicans in, but they said, you cannot be Anglicans. You've you got to be something else. And so the Church of England came to the United States and they became Episcopalians. So stand-up comedian, Episcopalian, comes up with a top ten list of why he thought it was great to be Episcopalian. Uh, you're not, or, or we're not here, so you can laugh at these things and you don't need to feel guilty. I'm not going to read all ten, but, but here's a few of them. Top ten reasons to be Episcopalian, no snake handling. Did, did you know that's a thing in parts of Christianity? Yeah, there's something to go in the brochure. Yeah. Number nine, you can believe in dinosaurs. Because I guess there are some places where. Anyway, pure aerobics that was in there. Have you ever been to an Anglican church? Up, down, up, down, up. It's, uh, boy, it's, it's an inspirational workout. Uh, number four on that list, free wine on Sundays. That's not Baptist. Sorry about that. But number one on his list, you don't have to know how to swim to be baptized. <laughs> We're hungry for joy. And yet somehow joy seems to be such an elusive thing. It's almost poignant in our lives. That list, incidentally, came from a man who was a self-admitted Episcopalian, but, but you know him for his other work. Uh, his name was Robin Williams, comedian, uh, uh, movie actor, brought a lot of joy into a lot of people's lives because most of the movies he did were comedies. Uh, I'll ask you if you've seen his movies, but you, you're not going to admit to it here anyway. So let me just say, in our family, we've seen his movies, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, Aladdin, Happy Feet, Night at the Museum, they made us laugh. In fact, for, for decades, he made a lot of people laugh. And, and we would gladly pay our money to go into a theater and be distracted for two hours by somebody who could make us laugh. And then when Robin Williams a few years ago joined that long, sad list of those people who took their own life, not only did the world stop and mourn, but they also stopped in that kind of tragic confusion, wondering how it is that somebody who was able to bring joy to so many other people had to struggle so much with sadness inside. Mental health experts say that depression is now 10 times more common in our culture than it was in the 1960s. Even though we're better educated and we're more affluent, what we really are is just richer, smarter, sad people. They say that the average onset for depression in 1960, it was about 29 and a half, just under 30 years of age. Today, the average onset for depression is 14 and a half. Our teenagers are bearing the crippling burden of this thing, and we wonder what is what is going on. And so, in the, in the midst of all that background, we've decorated up the sanctuary with some uh, joyful, fresh-looking leaves, and and we're launching this series. We called it Refresh, and we subtitled it the Pursuit of Happiness. But really, happiness is just standing in there as the kind of trendy cultural word for the deeper biblical word that we want to implant in in our lives, which is the word joy. The word joy. 
Happiness is being studied in the social sciences and psychology more now than it ever has been before. But we're going to root our study not so much in the social sciences. We'll touch on what we're learning there. But, but in a little book from the New Testament, a book called Philippians. And joy is the great theme that little book. Now, we did a study on the book of Philippians about three and a half years ago. So if you've been with us for a little bit of time, we've been over some of this ground, but, but we just sort of felt as we were discerning the pulse, not only of the church, but uh, of this day, that it'd be nice to get a little bit of refreshment, wouldn't it? So that's the idea behind the series, Refresh, a chance to look at this remarkable little book, of Philippians. And Emma read the introductory few verses. I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible. If you don't, there's probably one in one of the chair slots in front of you. But if you have it, open it up to the table of contents. In the table of contents, find the book of Philippians and turn to chapter 1, the first chapter. And I want you to have a look at those first few verses. And I want to suggest as you're glancing over this remarkable little letter that there's a surprising truth about the joyful life that's embedded there right in the opening verse. And in order to see it, we get to do just this little bit of background on ancient letter writing. Oh my goodness, ancient letter writing. How tedious could that be? But, but you know that you know, if you've, if you've studied at all about how to write a business letter, you know, a resume cover, a professional letter, that there's a format, right? Kind of a pre-described format. You start with, with, with your address, the sender's address, often up there in the header somewhere. And then underneath you, you have the recipient's address. Who's the letter going to? You have the date the letter was written on, and then you have the salutation. Dear so-and-so. Then follows the body of letter, and then at the very bottom, you sign your name. Sincerely, and then the name of the sender. That's our standard format for writing a letter. You're familiar with it? No, you're not, because we don't write letters anymore. But pretend that you're familiar with it. The ancient world had a format for letters, just as well-defined, just as carefully prescribed, but different. It started always with the name of the sender. So who's sending it? That came first. And then came the name of the recipient, and then came a greeting, and then you got to the meat of the letter. So here's some examples. We have a letter there to the church in Ephesus. Paul, this is how it starts. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints at Ephesus. That's how it starts. Here's another one. A letter to a young man named Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to Timothy. Here's one to Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Corinth. And so on and so on. You you notice the rhythm or the pattern of it? It starts with the sender. And whenever the sender, in this case Paul, was writing, he would start the same way. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God. Here is my credentials. Here's the curious feature of this little book of Philippians. Notice how it starts. Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, apostles of... No. What does it say? Servants. Servants. Not apostles. That sounds like it's got some clout. And that's got some gusto to it. But that's not how Paul describes himself here. Why present yourself here as a servant? What does that have to do with joy? Here's the other little bit of background. Philippi, the place the letter is being sent, Philippi is a very elite community. It's a Roman Empire 
outpost. And the Roman Empire is the most status-conscious, status-obsessed society in the ancient world. Philippi is one of its crown jewels. Everything that Rome stood for was epitomized there in Philippi. It was built on the pursuit of reputation and self-advancement and all of that stuff. In Philippi, the way to be happy was to climb the ladder. Sound like any other societies we know? Sure it does. So Paul starts by writing to the Philippians using a word that nobody in the Roman Empire would ever use to describe themselves. He says, I'm a servant. Literally, I'm a slave. He goes about as far down the ladder as you can go. He says, I'm not the master of a great estate. I'm not the ruler of the pleasant life. I'm not a successful business person. I am a servant, but I'm the servant of a great cause. And that brings us to what might be called the great paradox of happiness. And this really is the key idea, not just for today, but for the whole series. This is the secret of the joyful life that's embedded there in the opening verses of Philippians. Here's the paradox. If you make happiness the ultimate goal of your life, you will never be truly happy. Isn't that ironic? You will never be happy if the ultimate goal of your life is to be happy. Because it turns out that happiness is one of those things that is only ever found in a lasting, sustainable way as the byproduct of something else. It gets thrown in when you're pursuing something bigger, something better. It turns out that there's something more significant for our lives than just happiness. And it's what we're going to call, for the sake of this series, the meaningful life. There's a difference between pursuing meaning and pursuing happiness. And it turns out that happiness, devoid of meaning, there was actually there was a study done on this at Stanford University, happiness devoid of meaning is a very shallow, very self-centered, and a very fickle thing. It just doesn't last. It's like a vapor. It just it evaporates. People think, I'll be happy if all of my needs are met. If all of my desires are satisfied, if I can avoid pain and everybody likes me, that's the key to happiness. So I focus on my circumstances. People don't have a job. They think, if I could just get a job, I'll be happy. And then they get a job, and then all the pressures come and all the stress comes. And so they think, I'll be happy when I don't have a job anymore and I can just retire, right? It's actually interesting when they do the research on retirement. I don't know. You can check me on this, those of you who are retired. They find that when people retire, happiness spikes. It goes up. It goes up really quickly, and then it goes way down. Why? Because after the temporary blip of not having to get up and put on a suit and ride the train into work, after that fades, one of the things that also goes missing in people's lives for time is meaning. What's my purpose? What's the significance of my days. People get a chunk of money. And we're thinking if we could just have a little bit more money, we'd be happier. They get it, and then they spend it. More stuff, bigger house, nicer car, whatever it is. Happiness goes up for a moment, and then it goes back down again. People don't have kids. They think if only we could get some kids into the house. Hey, if you want some kids, no, we love our kids. You can't have our kids. But... You think we'd be happier if we could just have kids. By the way, the happiest section of the church this morning is this one, because Raphael Wallachek is here for the first time. Would you just welcome young Raphael? 
God bless that little one. Yeah, you all don't have to pay attention. You can just look at him for the rest of the service. That's happiness. Yeah. But but people think, you know, if we if we could just get some kids, get a family, that's the path to happiness. And we have this fantasy of what that is. I mean, chubby little arms reaching out to us for an embrace and, and brilliant children making straight A's in school and, and the stars of the school play and getting the, the red ribbons for athletics. And we have all these ideas. We're, we're going to be happy. Uh, and then they have kids. And what they get is dirty diapers and, and empty bottles and, and temper tantrums and exhaustion and sleep deprivation. I'm talking about the parents, not the kids. Yeah. And having children is costly and exhausting and stressful and, and draining. And, and, and here's the truth, kids. Happiness actually goes down for your parents. But you know what goes way up? Meaning goes up because it matters. Suddenly their life has this, this deeper meaning. It, it matters. And incidentally, you know when happiness goes back up again for the parents? It's 20 years later. <laughs> when but I'm going to have to really apologize to my family when I get home. <laughs> Here's the idea, though. It turns out that meaning matters here because God seems to have made us in such a way that we grow in sustainable joy only when there is increased meaning and purpose in our lives. In other words, if you're aiming at meaning, happiness gets thrown in. If you aim only at happiness, you get neither happiness nor meaning. Does that make sense? What I'd like to do this morning is just walk you through in a, a kind of general way at the beginning of the series here, four observations about a meaningful life. And so we open up this really happy-looking lime green bulletin. And there on the back page, you'll find some notes, some of the things we just went through. But at the very bottom, four observations. These are four observations about the meaningful life. And, and here they are. The first, that joy comes through generosity. The, the joy actually comes when I practice acts of kindness and generosity. It doesn't come as much, and this is counterintuitive, but doesn't come when people do things for me that I want, but more so when I do things for them that they need. The joy there is deeper. This is where Paul is going with his letter to the Philippians. This, this ladder-climbing culture, he's saying, go the other direction. Instead of trying to go up, go down. And he actually quotes a hymn about Jesus. One of the most famous hymns in the early church. He says, consider Jesus, who even though he had the very nature of God in him, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped and held onto. Rather, he took the form of a, guess what? Servant, a slave. He became like nothing. He, he's going down the ladder. So it's not surprising when Jesus says things like, just just give a cup of cold water in my name. I mean, it doesn't need to be grandiose, these huge gestures. Just, just small things done with kindness. There's this weird truth about us that we think we're going to be happiest when we get everything that we want. But it turns out actually that happiness and meaning are more firmly rooted in what we give than in what we get. Just 
a cup of cold water in my name, Jesus says. And it also turns out that, that joy is way more associated with the way that we give and, and what we give than the way that we accumulate and what we hold on to. If, if you want to invest best in your well-being over time, at whatever stage in life that, that you're in, then invest in those small acts of generosity that I guarantee will light up your day. So there's homework this week. Here's the simple homework. Uh, try in some small way what Jesus is asking. That simple cup of cold water in my name principle. It doesn't have to be big, but start with people, maybe the people closest to you, because that's easiest. Find something. It doesn't have to be dramatic, but, but find something that would express kindness and gratitude for them and do it. Small stuff. Run an errand for somebody when they didn't have to ask you. Help out voluntarily with a, a project at work, a colleague that looks like they're just really snowed under. Find somebody, this, this is great, find somebody who you don't get along with at work. Find your nemesis. Do something really nice for them. It's going to drive them crazy. <laughs> but, but you'll feel great. Yeah. Uh, take brownies to a neighbor, I don't know. Visit somebody in a nursing home. Go see them. You'll, you'll light them up. It'll just, it'll make their day. Right. Here's the second observation. Again, these are just really high-level things, but can I say this? As you're, as you're glancing around having a look at Raphael, Mike, I hope it's okay. I, I, I'm not trying to call you out, but not only did Mike and uh, Ashley give birth to their first child this week, but Mike is also gathering this weekend to bury his dad, Right? If ever there is a reminder that joy and suffering are intermixed in our lives, I mean, there it is. And somehow there has to be a way to continue to talk about meaning and joy, which is deeper than just smiling. I'm not saying you smile your way through these things, but there has to be a way of talking about it that's honest with so much suffering that's going on in the world. Is it even right to talk about joy? Should we be talking about refresher? Should we just be realistic and downcast? I mean, the, the world's a mess, and, and people are, and I'm a mess. But when you look carefully at human beings, and when you look at the Bible, you find this oddity. And here it is, that, that joy seems to be able to exist even in the most, the most dire of circumstances. Great suffering, and yet joy that's unstoppable, like a southern Ontario wind. I mean, just nothing seems to hold it back. In the book of Acts, we read about the time that Paul was in Philippi. Remember, he says to them, every time I think about you, I'm grateful, which means he knew them. He was there. It turns out, when Paul was in Philippi with them, they didn't treat him that great at all. When he was there, he ran into huge opposition and he was falsely accused and he was arrested and he was stripped of his clothes. We're told not only was he beaten, he was beaten to within inches of his life. He was thrown in prison. His feet were locked in the stocks. I mean, uh, that wasn't required. That's just somebody going the extra mile to make sure he suffered. This is Paul. And, and the Philippians said, listen, you want to be happy? We'll give you something to be happy about. 
But listen to what it says about that time that he's there in Philippi. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas, they're in prison here. They're praying and they were singing hymns to God. Arrested, beaten, humiliated, stripped in prison. And they're singing joyfully hymns to God. And the other prisoners are listening in. And there you are. And you're in the middle of elite Philippi. And, and two prisoners are making a dungeon cell the happiest place on earth. And you know what they were singing? They were singing the happy song by Pharrell Williams, of course. Clap along if you feel that happiness. It, it didn't work in the first service either, Emma. I don't, we don't know what they were singing. But, but it was contagious. And joy has to be one of the most contagious things about the gospel. How do we respond to suffering? Uh, you, you don't just close yourself off to the possibility of joy and feel guilty. I shouldn't, I shouldn't find anything to be joyful of. But it turns out that the best response to suffering is not hopelessness. It's usefulness. It's not despair about what's going on. It's determination to still make a difference in spite of what's going on. So the, the best prayer in suffering isn't, God, make me less miserable. It's, God, make me more useful. We can all do that. It doesn't matter how bad it is. We can do that. There is no suffering that can stop you from supporting a hungry child through an organization like Compassion Canada or, or Scott Mission or, or helping the work that we do at the open door. There's no amount of suffering that I know of that can, that can stop you from encouraging a friend through a letter or a message or, or a visit. That's just a cup of cold water in my name stuff that Jesus says. And I know, I know that some of you are suffering and it's really deep right now. You've been through it. You're in the middle of it right now. It's a catastrophe worse than you ever imagined. You lost your job. Your health plummeted. You lost somebody that you love, whatever it is. And, and the, the dark cloud of depression is just settling in on your life. Somebody, somebody in the room listening right now, you're so deeply depressed, you're not even sure it's worth it to get up and face it for another day. You're so filled with fear and dread and anxiety about everything that the mere thought of trying to start the day tomorrow is almost overwhelming. And it took everything that you had, all your courage, just to come here today. And so I want to tell you, in a world that often stigmatizes that so much as weakness, that I'm so proud that you came, that you belong here, that that's why we exist as a people and as a place. We're not a place for the everything is in control and I'm great all the time crowd. We're not for the we're the most normal of normal people and everything is perfect bunch. We're all just we're all just a little bit messed up, aren't we? I mean, can't you agree with that? If you agree with that, 
let me invite you to do this. Just turn, we do this all the time, but do it anyway. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm a little bit messed up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, if you know the person next to you, maybe you can get away with doing this. Say, I'm a little bit messed up, but that's okay, so are you. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. You're enjoying that way too much. Let me give you one of the great scriptures, one of the great one-line verses of truth and hope and promise that's in all of Scripture. It comes from Psalm 30. Sorrow may last through the night, but joy, you know it, joy comes in the morning. Say that with me. Sorrow may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. And I don't know when your morning is going to come. Maybe literally it'll be tomorrow. Maybe it's going to take weeks, maybe next year. Maybe at the resurrection. But it's coming. Suffering is powerless before meaning. And so it does not stop the ebb and flow of deep divine joy from weaving its way through your life. Here's the third observation. Turns out meaning comes when we invest most deeply in things that matter most. That makes sense, doesn't it? But what are the things that matter most? The remarkable testimony of, of the Bible, and, and I think the shared testimony of human beings, seems to be that people matter most. That in spite of the fact that we're pretty messed up and sometimes we've made a mess of the world, People matter to God more than anything else. I thank God, Paul says, every time I remember you. Which is remarkable because Philippi was awful to him. But he's grateful for them. In all of my prayers, he says, I always pray with joy because of you. Life is mostly about relationships. Show me somebody whose relationships are unhappy and resent-filled and unresolved. And I'll show you somebody who, regardless of what they may have in life, will not be able to hold on to joy. On the other hand, show me somebody who has meaningful relationships, and I dare you to find a joyless life there. It's about people. I mean, this is, it's just true. This isn't deep wisdom, folks. This is just true. There was a study done, the Journal of Socioeconomics. They found that changes in people's income, how we yearn for that, right? Couldn't we just have a bump in our income? Turns out that people's, when people's income goes up, it actually brings very little change in general happiness. However, if you change one key relationship in a person's life, if it goes from dysfunction to function, from brokenness to reconciliation. That's worth, and I don't know how they grade this, that's worth an income bump of over $100,000. I don't know how you monetize that, but there it is. Think about Paul for a second, the author of Philippians. Financially dirt poor at this stage of his life. Relationally filthy rich. That's Paul. That's the reality of life in the kingdom of God with Jesus. He says, every time I remember you, I'm grateful. God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the people that you put in my life. 
Am I spending as much time building relationships as I am building a career? Because when I'm with people, uh, the gratitude that can overwhelm is, boy, that's one of the most exhilarating things that life has to offer. What an amazing thing to be with another person and know that they were made fully in the image of God and share life with them. How many of us, if we were honest, would be able to write a letter like what Paul writes? I always thank God when I think of you. I mean, if we're honest, my letter might be something like this. From Richard to X. You didn't think I was actually going to put a name in, did you? I complain to God every time I think about you. I always pray, why couldn't you change him? Uh, Why couldn't you make him just a little bit different? Why can't I just have normal, healthy people in my life, Lord? (laughs) Turns out I'm not anyway. Paul writes to the church in Corinth this fabulous little phrase. He says, keep no record of wrongs. Just don't rehearse them in your mind. Don't, Don't magnify them in history. Just don't go there. Instead of keeping a running tally of wrongs. Do the opposite. Do a gratitude audit. Who are you grateful for? When's the last time you told them? Paul says, I thank God every time I think of you because of our partnership in the gospel. This is the greatest meaning of all for Paul. That the thought that what's up there, the kingdom of God, somehow is coming down here to the poor, the lonely, the sinful, and together we're a part of it. Philippians exists as a letter. One of the most marvelous little pieces of correspondence in ancient history. It exists specifically and almost solely because of gratitude. It's a thank you letter. It's a thank you letter. And I couldn't imagine getting to this place in in the message without wanting to stop and just say thank you to my family, to to my church. You, you overwhelm me. I, I get to loiter around here a lot through the week as to Sheldon and Emma and the staff. And, and we see you in and out. And, and you're coming because you care about kids. And so you're giving up your weeknights. And you care about our retirees. So you're giving up your weekdays. And, and you care about our adults and our teens and our preteens. And, and you care. And you just keep showing up. We can't seem to stop you. <laughs> you just you keep showing up because you care. More than that, you're showing up there over at Square One at the Open Door and at the Scott Mission in Toronto. And some of you are showing up all over the world on the mission field. You just keep showing up. And beyond showing up, you're, you're opening up in prayer and, and you're opening up your checkbook. Uh, we don't actually have those anymore. Your, your, your debit card. And, and, and you're sharing what you have because, because there are things in the world that matter and and how you safeguard the resources that God gives you, that matters and you're generous. And I guess I just want to say thank you. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude when I think about you. Thank you. Here's, um, here's the final observation. And really this, this gets right back to that central principle. It turns out that joy, lasting, sustainable joy, is rooted not in your financial or your physical or or your vocational circumstances, not what you have or or what shape your body is in, not what you do. It's rooted in your spiritual circumstances. 
and that's really counterintuitive because there's this there's this really clear relationship in our day between where you live and and how happy you ought to be. And we work really hard to get ourselves living in the right place because we're going to be happy. If we could only just get to the right neighborhood in the right house, we'll be happy. There, there was a time when, when most of the members of my generation were convinced that happiness was out west. And so there's this mass exodus of people who, who moved to the west, better climate, beautiful scenery, ocean out one window, mountains out the other, great job opportunities. And so everybody went west. This was 25 years ago. And so, I, I mean, I was really fascinated when Stats Canada did their national survey of the happiest places to live in Canada. And it turns out that Vancouver, the crown jewel of Western Canada, is home to some of the most miserable people on earth. <laughs> Just about as miserable as people in the GTA, in case we were going to gloat. Now, incidentally, if you're curious, the three happiest regions in Canada, according to Stats Canada, Saguenay in Quebec, Trois-Rivières on the Quebec-New Brunswick border, and St. John's, Newfoundland. Go figure. And and I don't claim to know why, but it, it just is. But here's the idea. Here's the key point. There is no place, no, no geographical place. There is no circumstance. There is no external situation, money, health, beauty, uh, not even a house in the GTA <laughs> that can bring lasting internal happiness. Paul says that the only location that really matters when it comes to this is your spiritual location. What you really are is not a resident of the GTA, but a follower of Jesus Christ, who you really are. Is not somebody on the stats rolls of Peel region, but, but a spirit-filled child of God who is sent as a servant of humanity, temporarily residing in Mississauga. You're in the GTA, but, but we don't buy into that mindset. We don't buy into that way of life because it doesn't matter so much that we're in Brampton or, or Burlington or we live on Burnhamthorpe or, or whatever it is. It, it, what matters most is that we are in Christ, that, that beautiful expression. It's not where you are, it's who you are. It's, it's not what you have, it's, it's who has you. What does that mean? It, it means that if Jesus is for me and with me and in me, then, then that's enough. I mean, that's, that's it. That Jesus is always there beside me. He's, he's going before me. He's watching over me. He's got my back. He's got my heart. He's at my side. He's, he's in my corner. And that's enough. I may be in trouble. It may be suffering. It may be a hospital bed. But if I'm in Christ, I'm good to go. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And Paul says that your spiritual location is in Christ And if that's the case, your geographical location could be anywhere on earth and your ultimate well-being is not at risk. Joy is not a feeling. Not an emotional state. It's not the same as being in a good mood. The Bible never says, be in a good mood. Joy is, as one writer, Dallas Willard said, joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. The ability to look out over the landscape of your life with all of its trials and all of its possibilities, and just say, it is well. It is well. That's why Paul never actually says, 
rejoice. He says, rejoice in the Lord. It is well. Next week we get to celebrate Mother's Day. And the service is going to be led by by the women from our women's ministry. And I'm, I'm, really, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and then the following week we get back into the series, Refresh, with week two, which we've titled Four Ways to Make Your Life Miserable. This, this would be a great series to bring your nemesis to visit with you. <laughs> now, obviously, it's, we're not going to leave you there. It's intended to illustrate the things that we're not going to try and claim and do. But I, I hope that you'll come back next week and, and throughout the series. Uh, we get a chance to be able to, to be there with each other, to hold each other up, to enjoy a handshake, an embrace, a smile, to celebrate joy. And to do so with the reminder here that our greatest, our truest identity is those who are in Christ. And there's nothing that can ever take that away. I'm going to invite Edmund to come and, and then we'll come to the table. And uh, why don't we stand for prayer this morning, if you're able. Join me in standing. And again, as we come to prayer, we hold on to that great verse of Scripture. Sorrow may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Let's pray. God, I pray for my sisters and brothers here in the room. There are some here this morning who are they're just filled with gratitude. Wonderful things are going on in their life. Great relationships. There's great satisfaction at work. Friendships. Wonderful opportunities are opening themselves up before them. And God, we don't want to take any of that for granted. So we just say thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. But God, there are others who are here this morning and... They're facing really big challenges. The loss of health, problems that seem insurmountable, pain, even death. God, we, we have only one hope in that moment. Jesus. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross and scorned its shame. So God, would you bring joy into every heart here, into every circumstance, a joy that transcends all the circumstances of where we live and what we do, a joy that death itself cannot defeat. And right now, God, kind of like a stake in the ground, we proclaim our joy in you. We offer you our hearts, our worship, our gratitude, our lives. We offer you our eternities, and we do it in the name of that great joy bringer, Jesus himself. In his name we pray. Amen.